0: My name is Matt, if I haven't met you before. I'm the lead pastor here at Anchor Church. It's great to see you here this morning. And I just wanted to say, wasn't last week such a wonderful week, a, a celebration of one year at Anchor, and it was such an amazing day. So I just want to say thank you to all of our teams who worked so tirelessly hard to put on a crazy event last week for Jumping Castles and Amazing Morning Tea, and the production team have been working with this set for the last few weeks. So I just want to say a huge, huge thank you. To those of you who made last week amazing, and it was really, it really was an amazing week. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to get into God's Word. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. The verses will be on the screen and you can follow along with them. But um, we're working our way through a series at the moment called Church on the Margins. As we look at a church in, uh, or a number of churches really, across, What is modern-day Turkey? A letter that Peter, the apostle, has written to them to encourage them in the faith in a culture and a society that had vastly different views from them. And so we're going to pray together. I'm going to read from 1 Peter 2, verse 9, and uh, we're going to unpack this part of the scriptures together. So let me pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word, your word that is like a hammer that smashes rock to pieces. Your word, that is like a two-edged sword, it judges the thoughts and attitude of our hearts. And your word, Father, it is like a bountiful crop that produces righteousness in our lives, a seed that produces righteousness. And Father, we pray this morning we would come humbly to your word. And we ask as we do that, you would remind us this morning of our identity, our standing before you in the gospel, and of what that identity calls us to, our purpose. We pray, Father, that you would encourage us as your people this morning to love and to bless this city so that the name of Jesus may be made famous. And we ask it in his strong name. And God's people said, Amen. 1 Peter 2, chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 2, verse 9. <clears throat> My voice is struggling this morning, so you have to bear with me. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Seems to me that identity and purpose are linked, intrinsically linked. Identity and purpose. Even you take just a random object, for example, like a guitar. I mean, it's... it's identity shapes its purpose. The reason that it's made the way it is, the, the reason that it's made of the type of timber that it is, solid spruce top, right? It has to be solid or guitarist like, yes. Uh, the strings, the frets, all of that is is there to make sounds, to make music. Or, or for example, the chair that you're sitting on right now, its identity is linked with its purpose. The reason it has a wide center of gravity and four legs and, and a solid base so you can sit on it. Right? Our identity is linked to purpose. That's true of us as people, is it not? Created in the image of God after his likeness. That makes us people with dignity and purpose and significance. And that purpose is that we would glorify God, our creator, our maker. Identity and purpose are intrinsically linked together. And we're going to see that again in this passage. Now, you might be asking, why does Anchor just keep talking about identity? Well, partly is Peter keeps talking about it. For a chapter and a half now, Peter has been banging on about what we call gospel identity, who we are because of what Jesus has done. The reason that's important is because our doing flows out of our being. That is, what we do flows out of who we are as God's people. So often we get it the other way around. I mean, you you would introduce yourself to someone and say, hey, I'm Matt. Oh, what do you do? I'm a pastor. I'm an accountant. I'm a musician. I'm an artist. I work in business. We define ourselves by what we do. Now, the problem with that when you get to the church and when you get to Jesus is if we define ourselves by what we do, we end up having a works-based definition of us and of the church. And rather, we need a a gospel-centered definition of who we are. And so Peter keeps banging the drum of identity for a whole chapter and a half before he even really gets to call this church about how they ought to live. Because our identity shapes our purpose. And so as we walk our way through these verses here in 1 Peter, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at our identity again. I know we looked at it last week. We're going to look at our purpose. And then finally, we're going to look at Peter's strategy Our identity, our purpose, and Peter's strategy. So let's go. Firstly, identity, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Peter is borrowing language here from the Old Testament, from Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6, from Isaiah 43, verse 20. And he's kind of mashing them all together to create some identity statements. Four identity statements about the church a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people, his people. So we're going to unpack each of them individually. The first is a chosen race. God initially chose his people, Israel, out of all of the nations of the earth. He chose them to be his, not because they were better than any of the rest, but because he is a God of grace And mercy, and he chose them, setting his affection upon them and calling them to be his people. And they were a people of Jewish descent, Israelites. That was their ethnic background. And if you weren't a part of that ethnic background, you couldn't very easily become a part of God's people. There's some obstacles and hurdles you had to jump through before you got there, but these were God's special people, chosen race. But now the church is a new race, no longer defined by ethnic background, by the color of your skin or by the origin of your birth. Now the church is now defined by faith in Jesus that transcends any sense of culture, race or birthplace. We are a new race, a chosen race. If you remember back to chapter 1, Peter addresses this letter to a bunch of people who are ethnically different from each other, scattered throughout all the regions of what is now modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor. People from Cappadocia, Pontus, Galatia, Bithynia. All these people from different cities, different tribes, different ethnic backgrounds. But now, none of that matters in the church. Because they are part of a new chosen race. God's heavenly race. You know, there are two truths that ought to completely demolish any sense of racism. The first truth is that every single person is created by God in his image and likeness with purpose, dignity, value. That that alone ought to destroy racism, right? But the second truth is this truth here, that in Christ there is no longer Jew and Greek. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Your earthly race does not matter anymore. What matters is is if you belong to God's new chosen heavenly race in Christ. Our unity, there is a unity here that runs deeper than the color of your skin. And that is that we are all people who have been called by God to be part of this new race. You know, one of our values at Anchor Church is that we would be a multi-ethnic church that represents the the multi-ethnic city that we live in. I think it's, um, I, I read somewhere, and I think this stat is actually wrong, but I'm going to quote it anyway, that 46% of people in Sydney weren't born here. Now, that just seems way over the top, but there is a significant portion of people who live in this city who were not born here. a significant amount of you who weren't born here. I wasn't born here. We live in a multi-ethnic, multi-racial city. And as you look around our city, you'll notice that our city tends to clump Ethnically, racially. You know, you've got the, um, the Indians in Harris Park. You've got the Phillos in Riddie Hill. You've got the South Africans in St. Aves. You've got the Aussies kind of in North Shore, Shire, Hawkesbury. You've got the, uh, the Vietnamese in Cabramatta. You've got the Sudanese in Blacktown. You've got, um, what else have you got? You've got the Afghanis in Auburn. Puerto Ricans, Where, I mean, in... Bankstown, <laughs> hanging out with all the Lebanese in Bankstown. That's right. So you see what happens and I know that's a gross, gross stereotype of our city, but you do tend to see cultural and racial clumping across our city. Now as a church, we ought to be countercultural in that and not just clump in our racial ethnic groups but be a beautiful mosaic of the gospel as people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation gather around Jesus. That's the picture of heaven. That's where this is all heading towards. And the church ought to reflect that, what a beautiful mosaic of the gospel it is when that happens. We are a chosen race. Secondly, we're a royal priesthood. We're a royal priesthood. In 1 Kings 19, God calls Israel to this identity. He says, you're a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests. Israel were to be to the nations around them exactly what the priests, the Levites, were to them. Priests ministering in the presence of God. Now, the priests had this kind of role, this job description in two directions. The first part of their job description was to teach the law of God to the people, bringing the character of God to the people And their second role was to bring the people's offerings before God. Right? And so in essence, you could say they're, they're about bringing the people to God and bringing God to people. That's what it meant to be a priest. And as a kingdom of priests, Israel was to do that to the nations around them. Bring God to the people and bring the people to God. And Peter says that's exactly what the church ought to do. The church ought to be about being constantly in the presence of Jesus. We learned that last week. We are a new temple filled with the Spirit of God, constantly in His presence. And we're to take that presence of Jesus to people and try and bring people into Jesus' presence. That's what it means to be a royal priesthood, a church. In fact, it's exactly how Paul describes His role as a minister of the gospel in Romans 15. This is what it says in Romans 15, 16. He says to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, in the priestly service of proclaiming the good news of Jesus. That's what Paul says his identity is, to bring the nations to God and God to the nations. We are to continue in that priestly duty of doing the exact same thing. That's who we are. We are a royal priesthood. We're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. And thirdly, we're a holy nation. A holy nation. It's very has a very similar idea to chosen race there, but this time the emphasis is on the holiness of this people. We're set apart. We're distinct. We're a holy people like our holy God. Remember last two weeks ago, we saw that Um, Peter calls us to be holy because God himself is holy. We're people whose lives are distinct, are different, who've been set apart and sanctified for God's purposes. And that's exactly the role of the Spirit in our lives, to transform us, to sanctify us, to make us more and more like Jesus, reflecting his glory. We're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy priesthood. Nation. And fourthly, we are God's people. You notice at the end of verse 9 there it says that we're a people for his own possession. We're a people for his own possession. That doesn't mean that God owns us because he created us, although that's true. What it means is that God has valued us. We're precious to him, we're special. We're for his possession, his special people. Very similar to that idea is verse 10, where Peter says this, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That statement there about God's people comes from an allusion to the prophet Hosea, who, who God told to go and marry a prostitute. So go and marry that prostitute, have children with her, and then when you have children, I want you, I want you to give them these two names. The first child you were to call, and I don't need to get this right because it's hard to pronounce. Where am I in my notes? I've just been talking and I don't even know where I am. The first child's name. Anyway, let's just go for it. I think it's Lo Ruama. Right? And it means no mercy. And the second is Loami, which means not my people. And then God says, I will show mercy to no mercy and I will call those who are not my people, my people. And those children there are a picture of Israel, of God's people who would chase after the gods of other nations who would hoard after them. And God says, I'm going to love you anyway. These people, I will have mercy on them. I will call them my people. That's a picture of the church, of people who are, broken and sinful and idolatrous and worship all the other things that this world has to offer except Jesus. In almost every single Old Testament image that you come across, the church is a fulfillment of it. Almost every single one. Last week we saw that we are a new temple. This week we see that we are uh, a chosen race, a holy nation, that we are priests, new priests, offering new sacrifices. Every single Old Testament picture you have of God's people and of what He was doing is now fulfilled in Christ and in the church. I mean, the, the parallels are unmistakable. That's why I think it's so important for us to read our Old Testaments, right? Because we, we don't really get the richness of these pictures until you read all of these images and their significance and meaning in the Old Testament and how now they are relevant for us as God's people in Christ. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are God's people, His own possession. You know, I was thinking, how do we how do we get a church to be a church that's living in community and on mission? How do we do that? how do, How do we get you guys to be? A, be living on mission for Jesus every single day, living as missionaries. You know, we could um, go to the Great Commission and say, this is what Jesus commanded you to do, so go and do it. And that that would be fair enough. Or we could maybe guilt you, you know, make you feel really guilty about not doing it. Uh, I certainly wouldn't try that. I hope no one would. But it seems to me the best way to do that is not to do those things, but the best way to do that is to help you see the wonder of your new identity in Christ. And that overflowing from that would be a life that is lived, a life that has this sense of purpose about it because of who I am positionally in Christ. So it's exactly what Peter does here. He takes our identity, takes who we are, and then he connects it with our purpose. Let's go back to the beginning of verse 9. Verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That, that's the purpose statement there. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The purpose of God calling you to be His people is that you would proclaim His excellencies, that you would make known His worth, that you would declare to this world that God is glorious and worthy of worship. That's why God calls us His people, that we would speak of His marvelous deeds, His wonder. You exist to make God look glorious. We exist as a church to make the name of Jesus famous in this city. Now, the question there is when Peter says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, is that witness or is that worship? Are we talking here about praising God or are we talking here about going out and talking about Jesus? And it seems to me it's both. I don't think we need to draw an unnatural distinction between those two things here. The church is called to be both a worshipping community and a witnessing community. And Peter takes this image and uses it in both ways. The language here is, is very similar to that what we find in the Psalms of people praising God. But Peter will take this and turn it into a missional application about living everyday lives with gospel intentionality as we're about to see. What Peter calls his church, too, is gospel celebration, declaring not just nice things about God, but declaring his acts of salvation, his mercy, his grace, declaring our exodus, that God has brought us out of darkness, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the light. No longer like God's people who are taken from Egypt into the promised land or taken from exile back into the promised land. We are taken from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's what we proclaim about our God. that He has radically transformed us and changed us by the gospel in Christ. And that's not something we just do on Sunday. We do that in word. We do that in deed. We do that in song. And we do that 24-7, all of life. It is who we are It's who we are as individuals. It's who we are as gospel communities. It's who we are as a broader church at Anchor. We are God's people to declare His glory, to make Him glorious and worthy. Identity and purpose. God's people with the purpose of making Him famous. Now the question is, how do we do that? How does that happen? How does Peter instruct this church in their context to do it? And the final thing I want to hit on this morning is the strategy. How do we, as God's people, make him famous? This is what it says in verse 11. Verse 11. Beloved. It's such an old word, that. Beloved. Dearly beloved. It just means people that I love. I wish they'd change it. Anyway, (laughs) beloved people that I love, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. These verses here, verses 11 and 12, are kind of like the hinge verses in the whole letter of 1 Peter. Where Peter, after just spending a whole chapter and a half talking about identity and the gospel, then begins to talk about how we live that out, how we actually do this. And he begins with what is kind of like a summary statement of his strategy. He's going to unpack this as we go along, but his summary statement of the strategy is this. Live such honorable lives that people who watch it would end up worshiping Jesus. That's the strategy. Live such honorable lives that the people who watch it would end up worshiping Jesus. Peter goes on to apply this principle to all of life. In verse 13, he's going to talk about what it looks like to submit to the governing authorities. He's going to, look like, uh, he's going to explain what it looks like for servants to submit to their masters in order to win their masters over. Or in chapter 3, verse 1, he's going to talk about what it looks like for a wife who's married to an unbelieving husband and how by her conduct she can win him over to the faith. And and then in 3, verse 8, he's just going to apply that to every single one of us. This principle, live such honorable lives that those who watch it would worship Jesus, is Peter's strategy for us being God's people making his name famous and glorious. And so, I want to unpack that this morning. His main concern here is how God's people live their lives as Christians in a culture that is vastly different from theirs. Worldview, motivations, principles, all of it vastly different from their, their faith. Peter says, this is how you live it out in this context. And he reminds them there that culturally they are sojourners and exiles. That is, that they're temporary residents here. This is not their home. takes us back to chapter 1, verse 1. You're elect exiles. Peter says, As you live here as aliens and strangers, you ought to do that, verse 11, by abstaining from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You know, so often I think people can excuse sin by saying, well, it doesn't hurt anyone else. It doesn't affect anyone but me. The problem is that Peter says here that our sin wages war against our soul. It wages war against the inner person. That that person that that the Holy Spirit has come to dwell inside of and begin to transform sin wages war against us. It might not hurt anyone else. That might be true initially. But eventually that begins to make us ineffective and spiritually weak and what's happening on the inside eventually ends up showing up on the outside. And so Peter says live abstain abstain from the passions of the flesh and then verse 12 keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evil doers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation you are on display. As a follower of Jesus, you are on display. And Peter says, we ought to live such honorable lives that people who watch it will be won over and that when Jesus returns, they would glorify him. That's what he says. Your life is on display. The strategy is not military. It's not political. It's not uh, involving campaigns and ads. It, It doesn't involve getting a milk crate and standing in the corner and preaching at people. The strategy is an honorable life. It's your honorable life. That's Peter's strategy for making God famous. One of the best strategies for mission is your godliness, your character, the fruit of the Spirit displayed in your life. That's the best strategy for mission. The church is God's primary mission strategy for the world. Us, we are. It's not going to use anyone else. The church is God's primary mission strategy for the world. You are God's primary mission strategy. And that sounds daunting at first, doesn't it? I think, wow. But what that also does is it sanctifies every single corner of our life and makes every single day and every single thing that we do an opportunity to live our lives in such honorable way that it makes Jesus look worthy of Worship, whatever you do, your parenting, your work, your exercise, the way you drive your car, road rage, non-road rage, all of that, no right turns, double white lines, 65Ks in a 60 zone, all of, all of our life speaks of the God that we worship. That's exactly what it was like for God's people, Israel. The whole book of Leviticus is about all of the minute details of God's people's lives including everything that the clothes they wore the way that they had to grow long bits down the size of their beards and couldn't trim them all of their life was to be worship to God all of our life is an opportunity to make Jesus look worthy of worship this is ordinary people living extraordinary lives empowered by the spirit to make Jesus look glorious and this isn't just about living uh, a, a, an honorable life so that you can invite someone to an evangelistic event where a professional will share the gospel with them, right? No, no, your life is the evangelistic event. It is. You know, there's um, that famous saying, I think it's by um, Francis of Assisi, who says, um, you know, preach the, go- uh, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. Now, we love to hate that because... Because you can't actually preach the gospel without using words. But there's something about that that's, that's true. That if you just simply stand on the street corner and bark at people the gospel without them ever seeing that Jesus can radically and has radically transformed your life, chances are nothing's going to happen. I remember that just this week um, in, in our offices, we've got um, a, a, an architectural firm that works next to us. And there's a guy called Ted who's always up for a chat loves a bit of a chat, and Ted comes in almost every day. And um, this week he came in and was having a bit of a chat to Brian, and, and Brian was doing his best to try and share the gospel with Ted. And, and Brian would say something, and Ted would say, yeah, but that's what? of course he would think that. And as I was thinking, I was like, Ted really has not seen any of our lives other than we sit at computers and type away and make phone calls and send emails. What if Ted saw something in our lives that was markedly different Maybe that would give us a better opportunity to share what we're sharing and Ted would hear it in a different way. Peter here is not saying just live and never speak the gospel. He's saying that's the first point. You live your life, it gives opportunity, it gives rise to people questioning why you do things the way you do, then you have opportunity to speak the gospel. Your life is the evangelistic event. Your life is the evangelistic event. Now, in case you're thinking, well, this sounds like heresy, let me just take you to another person who preached this as well. His name was Jesus. And in Matthew 5, this is what he said. Matthew 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others... What's the light that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven? At Anchor, we're about living everyday life with gospel intentionality. We're not about adding mission to an already busy calendar. We're about taking our calendars and making the whole thing mission. Every single event on that calendar. Your work, your recreation, your family, your meals, all of it. In your gospel communities this week, we'd, I'd love you to do this exercise. Take the time to think of your routine, your daily routine, your weekly routine, your monthly routine. Like, Think of all of the things that make up your routine and think about how you can add one of these two things to it, if not both. First, an element of community. How, how can I add an element of community to this, to my commute? Can I meet someone from my gospel community at the train station? we we'll catch a train together and, and maybe pray together before we go to work. How can I add an element of community? How can I add an element of mission to this? How can I add it? I mean, I've got to eat 21 meals a week. Surely I can have my neighbors or a friend over who doesn't know Jesus and share a meal with them and do life with them. They get to see our family. They get to see me lose my nana at my kids and then apologize to them and repent to them and, and remind them of the gospel that Jesus forgives me for the sin that I've just committed, right? How can we add an element of community and an element of mission to our everyday routines? All of our life, every single part of it, is an opportunity to make Jesus look worthy of worship. But all of this falls apart if we don't live honorable lives. It all falls apart. You know, as um, church has begun to do some research recently, and a particular group called Olive Tree Media have done some fantastic research on the perception of Australian culture into church. And they found that the, the second biggest reason why people avoid Christians and avoid coming to church is because of Christian hypocrisy. 68% of people surveyed said that that was a significant blocker for them coming to church. Christian hypocrites. Now, if you're here this morning and that's you, you're not a believer, you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, I just want to say thank you for looking past our errors and mistakes to even come here this morning. Because it seems like for a significant part of the Australian population. That's a massive hurdle. And I want to say this. Yes, we don't always live up to what we claim to hold to. Yes, we are failures. We make mistakes. Hopefully, no one who follows Jesus claims to be perfect. Right? If they do, it's probably just they're a self-righteous jerk. All right? But we are a people who are not about performance. We're a people who are not about just externals, We're a people who are about grace, and we want to have the same air of grace over our mistakes as we do over other people's mistakes. And we want to say that the message of the gospel is that every single person comes to Jesus on equal terms. We're all sinners in desperate need of grace. But yes, sometimes we are hypocrites. Sometimes we do the very thing that we told you not to do. And we want to seek your forgiveness and apologize for that. And say it's really not about our performance, it's about Jesus and what he has done. The very thing that is going to make the good news of Jesus believable to people is often not your finely tuned arguments, not your regurgitation of John Lennox's view on, right? The thing that is often going to make the gospel believable is your phenomenally countercultural lifestyle, your friendliness your joy. I mean, are you a person of joy? Like when you go to work, people think, what is with that person? They are always full of joy. And it's not just, you know, chipper happiness. This is deep-seated joy that transcends any sense of suffering. Are you that person full of joy because of what God has done for you in the gospel? Your generosity your respect for all people, your lack of racism, your willingness to serve and to sacrifice. Do people see that of us? A profoundly transformed life is the best apologetic for the gospel. So here are some ways that I think we can do this. And there's a billion. I'd love you to spend some time in, um, in, as you chat after our gathering this morning thinking of other ways. But here are some ways that I think we can be different, countercultural. It is said that Australians are a culture of whingers. Now, I'd like to whinge about that statement, but I won't. But uh, particularly on the, the international sporting arena, we're, we're, we're the teams that just whinge, all right? We're a culture of whingers. The bus is late, petrol's too expensive, housing prices in Sydney are ridiculous, and my latte cost me 4.50, right? We we just love to whinge. But what if, what if we were a thankful people? The people that just paused and began to give thanks. I mean, surely of all the people on the face of the planet, we ought to be thankful. I and mean, Doesn't the gospel make us thankful that Jesus took us from being spiritually poor and made us co-heirs with him? Right? That's, that ought to make us a thankful people. And so rather than being a people who would whinge and grumble, we would be a thankful people. What about this one? In Australia, um, we love chopping people down that are successful. It's called the tall poppy syndrome. Anyone who's successful, we just want to bring them down to our level. It's called communism for the ego. And we just love to, even our our politicians, our leaders, we just love to make them just like me and you, right? What if, what if we began to honor people where honor was due? Because I think that's what the gospel leads us to, right? If, If we are truly, understanding our gospel identity, that we're not defined by my achievements, then I can praise someone for their achievements. I can can say, well done, great job, because I know that neither they nor I am defined by their achievement or by my lack of achievement. I'm defined by the gospel. Now, there's probably a billion other ways you could do that, but there are just two quick ways that we can begin to live radically countercultural lives in our workplaces, in our homes, in our sporting teams. Are we a countercultural church? Are we distinct, different, holy? Do people look at our lives and say, "I have to know what makes that person tick," because there is something radically different about them? I love the fact that um, that we can talk about this stuff and we actually see it happening here at Anchor. This is not just rhetoric; this is action. Just yesterday morning, I was driving up Swanson Street up here. And I saw the Croydon Park gospel community setting up a barbecue out the front of the housing commission there so they could give away free food, connect with people, meet them, see how they can love and bless them. Our gospel community just this week started to pool our money together to put it in a fund to begin to care for a lady named Diane who lives across the road from some of the girls in our gospel community so that we can buy her groceries, so that hopefully one day we begin to fix her house that's completely falling apart. She's a widow, she's got no family. We want to love her and bless her. I love the fact that coming up in a few weeks, we're doing something called Simple Love, where we're just really simply bringing groceries and everyday necessities and dropping them off at the um, Newtown Refugee Center so that refugees across our city can have their daily necessities met. I I love that. Now, wouldn't it be great if every single person who called Anchor Home went to their work, went to their school, went to their uni and said, you know what, in a couple of weeks my church is doing this thing called Simple Love and I'm going to put a box right here at my desk and if you want to bring groceries and, and, and staple needs and put them in this box, I'll take them to my church on Sunday and we're going to donate them to refugees. Right? To, to demonstrate that we're a people who care. I love that that's true of us. You know, I remember hearing the... Um, the story of, a, of some friends of mine, a missionary couple who were moving to an undisclosed country in Southeast Asia. They couldn't say that where they were going. It was a closed country. They, they weren't allowed to go as missionaries. They were going in stealth mode as aid workers. And um, they were asked as they were interviewed, what are you going to do when you get there? How are you going to tell people about Jesus? And they said, well, we're going to get there and we're going to get a house. We're going to live in that house as a family and we're going to go to school and we're going to go to work and we're going to meet our neighbors and we're going to do all of that as Christians. And people are like, hang on a sec, I'm I'm paying you to go. I mean, that sounds like a holiday, right? I'm not sure it was a holiday. But what they're doing is they're living every single day with gospel intentionality, living such phenomenal lives that it would demand an explanation from those who watch. You know, often the problem is that Christians, we're kind of known for what we're against and not what we're for. You know, everyone thinks, oh, you're a Christian, so yeah, you must be against sex before marriage and drinking. That means you're against the weekend, <laughs> except for maybe Sundays because you go to church on Sunday, so you must like that bit, right? And, so, and that's culturally, that's what people say of us. You're just party poopers. You're against sex and, and getting drunk. Boring. Now, is that all we're on about? no. Now it is true that our our God calls us to live wholly distinct lives, and it is true that, that we wouldn't partake in drunkenness and, and premarital sex or whatever it is. But we're, we're way more than just those two things. And wouldn't it be great if the church began to be known not what not, not for what we're just against, but what we're for? There are a church that loves to care for the refugees in this city. There are a church who loves to listen to people when they need a listening ear that we're humble, that we're servants, that we're generous. Wouldn't it wouldn't be good if the church was known for those things. We ought to be a people who party. And as I just say this? Of all people, we have reason to celebrate and party on the weekend. It's just that we do it a little bit differently, right? But we ought to be a partying people. The gospel calls us to that. I love the way that, um, that Paul says it in Titus chapter 2, and I'll finish with this quote. This is what Paul says to, to servants in the culture where they lived. He says, bond servants, that is someone who is bound to a master, that maybe gets a very minimal wage. He says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. I think that means stealing. But showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of, our, of God our Savior, or I love how the NIV puts it, you may make the gospel attractive. By the way that these people live their lives, not stealing from their master, not being dishonest, not just obeying him when his eye is on you, but when his eye is not on you, Paul says that that very act will make the good news of Jesus look attractive. Now, the word that is used there in the original language is the word "cosmeto" it's where we get our English word cosmetic from. So what Paul is literally saying here is that your godliness, your life is the <whistles> of the gospel. So what he's saying, your life makes the teaching of Jesus look attractive. or At least it should. But let me just say this. This morning, if if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, then I'd encourage you to ask some questions about what we believe, about who Jesus is. I'd encourage you to read a Bible for yourself and find out more, check out about Jesus. But I'd also encourage you this. Ask us our stories. Ask us our stories. Because as you hear our stories, you begin to see that we're not a people who are pretending to be perfect but there were a messed up people with problems like everyone else who have simply thrown ourselves at the foot of the cross and pleaded for God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. My hope is that you would see that God has radically transformed the lives of people in this church, radically transformed us, given us a new identity and a new purpose. And my question for you this morning is this. Where does your sense of purpose come from? Where does your sense of identity come from? Is it your gender? I am a male. I am a female. Is it your sexuality? Is it your career? I am a business person. I am a teacher. I am retired. I am a stu- is it your family? I am Chinese. I am Greek. Where does your sense of identity come from? And is your sense of identity anchored to something that is solid? Because careers change and Everything else fades. And just like we looked at last week, Jesus is the cornerstone that remains solid, the foundation that we can build our lives upon. And so who are you? Who are you at the very core of your being? Who are you? What is your identity? I know mine. I'm a child of God. And I've been placed on this earth to make God look glorious. What about you? Friends, if you don't have a deep sense of identity, I hope is this morning that we would bring you into the presence of Jesus and that through what he has done by his life, death and resurrection on the cross, he would wash away your sins and transform your life and give you a brand new start even today. Friends, if you would like to do that, we would love to chat with you and there will be people who would be available to do that immediately after this gathering But let me finish with this story. I remember the story that my old pastor Ray used to tell of a man in his church, an elderly man who was retired. His uh, family had moved on. His wife had passed away. And he um, had a large house with lots of empty rooms. And one day he heard about some refugees who were moving into into the, um, the, the suburb. And he thought, you know what? I've got an empty house full of empty rooms. Why don't I just offer one of my rooms up for a refugee? And this refugee came and lived with him and he helped him figure out all his paperwork. He helped him get a driver's license, teaching him all of the 150 hours that's required to get a driver's license. He he did all of that stuff for him. And then one day the refugee said to him, in very broken English, I know you go to church. Can you tell me about your God? And he was like... This is the moment I've been waiting for. And he began to try and talk about Jesus and he began with creation and he went to Revelation then went back to Exodus and then got to Paul and he got it all mixed up, it was all back to front. And he said to him, look, I I can't even explain this to you. Let me just go away and figure it out and I'll come back. The refugee said this to him. He said, you know what? I might not understand this, but this I know. If your God is anything like you, I want to worship him. If your God is anything like you, I want to worship Him. That's a phenomenal life that demands explanation. And that's what Jesus calls us to be as a church. Friends, I'm going to pray that God would empower us by His Spirit to be that people so that the city of Sydney would know that Jesus is entirely worthy of all our worship, praise, and honor. We're going to respond to that gospel In two ways, we've got uh, two stations to my right and my left, two drums. And on those drums are bread and grape juice. They represent Jesus' body and his blood. The the bread represents his body that was broken. The grape juice represents his blood that was shed. And we invite you as you are ready to come forward and to dip that bread in the grape juice and eat it and remember the gospel, remember what Jesus has done. And we're going to celebrate this morning, a people celebrating our new identity in Christ as we worship Him. Uh, So I'm going to invite the band to come up now. I'm going to pray, and we're going to do exactly that. So let me pray. Gracious Father, we thank You that You have called us out of darkness and into Your marvelous light. We thank You that we were once not Your people, but now You've made us Your people, that we were once not recipients of mercy, but now you have lavished your mercy and grace upon us. This morning, Father, we rejoice in the gospel. We rejoice in what you have done. And we claim our new identity. We, we acknowledge this morning that we are a chosen race. That we are a royal priesthood. That we are a holy nation. That we are your people. So that we would make your name glorious in this city. And so, Father, please take our lives, every single corner of them, every single hour of every single day, please take it and make it yours. Would we worship you all day? And Father, through us, through our lives, would you see fit as this world watches on to make your name glorious. Give us opportunities to bear witness to the difference that Jesus has made in our lives. We ask that you would do that for your glorious name's sake. And God's people said, Amen.